When I was 12 or 13 years old, somewhere around that middle school age, uh, my family went through a really hard winter. My father tore his ACL, and this was about 25 years ago, and so the surgery was not quite the same as it was today, if you know someone that's gone through it. He, uh, he had to have be on this kind of machine that would, that would move his leg back and forth to flex his knee through certain degrees, and so he was kind of laid up on the couch and really couldn't get around uh, very easily. After that had happened, my mother uh, was out in our yard, and we owned horses at that time. My sister was really into equestrian sports, I guess. I don't know if that's the right term. But. And uh, she was out feeding the horses late at night, and she tripped and fell and dislocated her shoulder. And then uh, in that same time frame, it was a really cold winter that year. It was, it was 92 or 93 in January, and, and our pool in the backyard it, was, it, it, it froze. It was an above-ground pool, kind of that circular shape. And it, it, it was so cold that it had frozen. And, and all of a sudden, one night in, in our living room, which was right outside where the pool was, we just heard this big kind of crash. And the pool had collapsed, and all the water had, you know, that was left had kind of rushed out. And then uh, my sister got really sick. I mean, I just remember... She was just not around that much, she was up in her room. And so as a, as a kid, you know, 12 or 13-year-old, I just remember sitting in my room one night. It was dark, and I had a skylight. I was kind of looking out at the stars. And I just remember starting to feel afraid. And the question in my mind was, what's next? I mean, all these things are happening. My dad's, like, you know, hurt. My mom is hurt. My sister's sick. Our pool just, like, blew up, you know. What's going to happen next? And as I started to ask that question, there were answers to that. Like, what if the house burned down? Or what if my parents died? You know, what would I do? Many of us have questions like that in our life. We look at the circumstances of our lives. We're going through a difficult experience. And we have an anticipation or a fear of what might be next. And in those questions, oftentimes we look at God and we wonder, where is God? Where, where is He? What is He doing? Is He really there? We're, we're going through a series uh, in the book of Luke and Acts is kind of a two-part book that's called, the series is called um, The Unsung Superhero, Working With Us to Save the World. And we're, of course, talking about the Holy Spirit and what He is doing to make this world new. But He's a behind-the-scenes kind of guy. He's a spirit. He's the Holy Spirit, and we can't see him. And so oftentimes, what he does goes unrecognized or unsung. And he's also working with some people that are often uncooperative and difficult to work with. And so our goal in this series is to recognize, one, that the Holy Spirit is working. To really believe that and to two, 
to start really cooperating with him. And here's what we're going to see today as we look at the Bible. The Holy Spirit is here and he is available. And we need to believe both of those things. Even though we can't see him, at least I usually can't, maybe you can, I don't know. The Holy Spirit is here. He is right here in this room. And He is available all the time. So to look at this, to find this, this is where we're going to find this today. We went through the book of Luke, kind of a blitz through just a number of highlighted chapters. And today we're going to be looking at the book of Acts. We're going to start out this book right in chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible, you can pick that up and follow along. I'm going to do a section of chapter 1, excuse me, and a section of chapter 2. Here's Acts 1.1. 1, 1. Give you a second to turn there if you're flipping some pages. All right, here's Luke saying, In my former book, Theophilus, which we now call the book of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day He was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles He had chosen. Now, notice something right there. Jesus, at this point, had risen from the dead. He is in His glorified state. He's walking through walls, appearing to the disciples. He's able to hide Himself from them. As, he's, as we saw like last week on Easter, he's walking on the road to Emmaus. They don't recognize him, right? And then he just, poof, disappears when they break the bread. He gave the instructions to the apostles through the power of the Holy Spirit. It says it right there. Giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Isn't that remarkable? The risen Second member of the Trinity in his glorified body is doing things through the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything Jesus did reflected the will of God, but he always did it all through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's always in cooperation with the Father and the Spirit. I think that line is incredible for us. Verse 3, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now here's another thing that's remarkable. Jesus gave the disciples many convincing proofs that he was alive. How many convincing proofs did they need? You think one appearance of a guy that was dead, that you saw nailed to a cross, that you like, they put him in the tomb, they wrapped him in all that stuff, right? You would think one would be enough to just fall down and be like, you're God, I'm following you forever. No, it was many convincing proofs. We heard you know, last week that he appeared to them, right? And they still doubted, right? In, in, in Luke 24. Many convincing proofs. And it took, he was doing it for 40 days. Over and over. He's appearing to these guys on the road and these guys in this room and then Mary and then Peter, it said. And speaking to them about the kingdom of God. 
How much more do we need Jesus to be made real to us? Now, obviously, our faith is built upon the testimony of the apostles as recorded in the Scripture. But they had the Bible too. They had the Old Testament, which in Luke 24 we saw last week, Jesus walked along the road and explained the entire Bible to these two guys. They had the testimony of the Scriptures that said Jesus kept pointing them. He laughs, right? I, I, well, I put that in there. But he says, you know, didn't you see all that the Scripture? Why are you so slow to believe what the Scripture prophesied concerning me? They had the Bible too. My point is this. The Holy Spirit makes Jesus real to us. He reveals the reality of Jesus being Lord. And that He is a risen Savior who is always working still. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. Now, one other thing that I think is interesting to mention. The Holy Spirit is here, and He is available to you. This room of apostles was a room full of cowards. They deserted Jesus. Right? When the guards come, okay, so maybe Peter wasn't as cowardly, although he does something cowardly. He grabs a sword, right? Slice off the guy's ear. They're fighting, right? He's trying to protect Jesus. And then once Jesus says, no, we're not doing it that way. That's not the way this is going to go. They all run away. Right? They, they leave. And then Peter right, then goes and denies Jesus three times. These are the people that Jesus, we're going to see in this next passage, is giving His Spirit to. I'm saying this to say, oftentimes we disqualify ourselves from thinking that the Holy Spirit would want to work with me because of X, Y, or Z in my life. That's nonsense. That is not the Bible. Verse 4, on one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. God is the best gift giver of all time. And my wife is a close second. Now, I am a hard person to give gifts to. There's been a number of times that my wife has bought me something. So, for instance, she got me a, a MacBook Pro a few years ago when I first started kind of working, writing sermons at the church. When I got it, I was not that happy. To open up, like, you know, the nice, nicest computer you can pretty much buy, and I, and I wasn't all that thrilled about it because I was kind of a PC guy, and so it was hard for me to receive. Oh, that's silly, isn't it? Okay? It's hard for me to receive this gift, but over time, she knew what I really needed and wanted, what was going to be better for me. And she rolls her eyes because it, it happens over and over again. It takes, she's like, okay, I'm going to give you this gift, and in four months, you're going to thank me for it because I know that you're going to like this, right? That's happened over and over again. 
So we were in Colorado on vacation last week before Easter, and um, my brother-in-law had a special gift for me that my, he asked my wife about before we got there. And so the day that we got there, I showed up, and he had an Apple watch for me. They're just turning me, this family's just turning me into an Apple person, you know what I mean? I got a, I got a phone now, they gave me a phone, I got a watch, okay. And when I, when I got it, I had this hesitation in my heart of like, do I, do I really want that? And I'm learning to, to receive the gift, right? And not, and not judge or analyze the gift. I'm willing to say this is a gift that someone has given me and that they probably know more what I want than what I think I want, right? In a lot of ways. This is the same thing with God, the best giver of gifts of all time. He knows what we need and even what we really want, although oftentimes we say we want something else. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift is from God. Now, Jesus was the greatest gift of all time. He gave us himself. And I don't know if this is heretical or not, but I'm just going to throw it out there. But I think the Holy Spirit maybe was an even greater gift. Because when we get the Holy Spirit, we get Jesus 24-7. So obviously, Jesus had to come, die on the cross, get raised from the dead for us to get the Spirit. But then when we get the Spirit, Jesus said it was better that he went away incredibly enough so that we would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God in us. The Holy Spirit making Jesus real to us. Connecting us to our Father's heart of love for us. It's the greatest gift he's ever given. It's incredible, right? The only thing with this gift like any gift, I guess, is we have to receive it. It has to be welcomed into our hearts. Just like salvation, right? When we, when we put our faith in Jesus, it's all connected. We receive the Holy Spirit, but then there's an ongoing relationship with a person who we can shut out. We can, who we can resist, who we can grieve. The Holy Spirit is here and He is available. Our job is to not resist Him, but to open up our hearts to Him. Now, the disciples had to do this. Jesus just said, right? Don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift my Father promised. You heard me talk about Him. You're going to get baptized with the Holy Spirit. They had a choice to make. Jesus, they watch him. He goes up into the sky. They go, where'd you go? Oh, he's gone, right? Two angels come and say, why are you guys staying around? Go to Jerusalem. He told you to go to Jerusalem. Get over there and start waiting, right? They had a choice. They could have said, you know what? Jesus is gone. I'm not really sure about this. I'm going back home to work on the farm again. Pick up the fishing, fishing nets, which some of them did, right? So Jesus kept appearing to them over and over again. Guys, I'm really alive. They had to make a choice to obey the voice of God, which was Jesus saying, guys, go to Jerusalem. That wasn't written in the Old Testament. It wasn't written anywhere at that point. It was the voice of Jesus speaking to them. They had to respond and go wait. So verse 6, they have a quick question about this. They gather around him and ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times of the days the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power. 
when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And again, this is, this is review because Luke talked about this in his previous book. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him going to heaven. Okay, I got ahead of myself a little bit there. But you can see I was telling the truth. All right? The point is this in this section. The Holy Spirit is here to give us power. He does two things. The Holy Spirit brings us to Jesus. And then he brings Jesus to other people through us. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, the Bible says, right? He opens our eyes. He's wooing us towards God. He's making Jesus real. He's doing the things that Jesus did so that we would come into God and believe that God is good and have a relationship with him. But then he fills us with power so that we can do what Jesus did, right? He is the Savior of the world. I mean, Jesus is the Savior of the world. The Holy Spirit is saving the world too, right? He is the superhero, He's making Jesus real to us, and then he's allowing us to make Jesus, through his power, real to other people. Holy Spirit's got power. He is here, and he is available. All right, chapter 2, skipping ahead here. The disciples pick another person to replace Judas. We're skipping that section. 2-1. Here's where it gets a little crazy. When the day of Pentecost came, a Jewish festival, celebration, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This is where everyone gets a little nervous. Okay? What's the result here? What's happening here? Okay? This is, the, this is what God promised, that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. It happens right here. The promise that God would be in us, right? All these promises in the Old Testament. By God writing a, you know, a new covenant where he'd write the law in their hearts. This is what is going on in this passage. God is coming to take up residence within these guys. Now, did that already happen when Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit? I don't know. Maybe. Is this just a baptism of the Holy Spirit and it's a little different? And, you know, now they are filled with the Spirit or baptized in the Spirit to have power? Or is it this is the first time they had the Holy Spirit in them? I don't know. I don't know if the Bible makes that entirely clear. Maybe to somebody else who does. I don't think it matters. Okay? The point is, the Holy Spirit is here and he is available. And as we're going to hear Peter say in the first sermon in the history of the church in just a little bit, when we believe, we receive the Holy Spirit. It's that simple. And we always want more. Not meaning that I have three, you know, three-fifths of the Holy Spirit right now. He's a person. You can't cut him up. Right? He's not some weird force that we can get a certain percentage of. He's inside of us. 
The work to be filled with the Holy Spirit is so that we are in 100% cooperation and submission to him. That is what we are talking about. Now, this was a crazy, momentous event, right, where there's this, this demonstration of power, and as we're going to see, then there's a resu- an immediate result from that. Now, the second thing I want to mention is, of course, the gift of tongues. Now, tongues is weird, okay? But the Bible says it's normal. And when I say that, it is not normative, Okay? This does not mean if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you don't, sorry. This does not mean if you don't have the gift of tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. That's not what the Bible teaches. Paul says, do all prophesy? Do all speak in tongues? He's, he's speaking, you know, to say, obviously, no. Okay? That is not to say that it's not a great gift from God. God doesn't give bad gifts. It is a way for you to connect with the Lord, praying through your spirit. Okay? So that Sometimes you just, you just can't pray, but that's all that you can do. It's a gift that God can give you to connect with Him. And it has other functions too, like we see in this passage. They start praying in tongues, and all these people that were in there for that holiday of Pentecost could start, these Jews from around the, the diaspora that had gathered in Jerusalem heard them speaking in their own language. There's a woman in our movement who was in the Middle East, uh, on a, on a short-term trip, and I think it was in coordination with a long-term team that we have there. And they were praying over some local uh, believers in a, in a Muslim context. So you, you can sense, you know, it's a high level of, uh, you know, oppression, stress there for a local believer. And she didn't really know what to pray. They didn't speak the same language. She started praying in tongues. Guess what? That person heard her praying over them in their own native language. That still happens today. Now, you can disbelieve that if you want. I could call her on the phone, probably get a hold of her, and say, here, you can listen to her tell you the story. Maybe she's a liar. I don't know. I have no reason to believe that she is. But, but my point is, is this, right? Tongues is still for today, and if you don't have it, it doesn't mean you don't have the Holy Spirit or you're a second-class Christian. But it is a gift, and Paul says he prays in tongues more than all of you. So that means it's probably pretty good. It's not a bad thing. Paul did some, good, some cool stuff, okay? So, what I'm trying to say is this. When we believe, we get the Holy Spirit inside of us. And we always need more. Meaning, not more, greater percentage of him inside of us, his whole person is inside of us, we need to cooperate with him more. Tongues is one piece of that. Now, let me say this. You can speak in tongues and not be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because anybody at any time can tell Jesus, there's the door, why don't you go stand outside? God's not going to take that gift away from you. At least that's my, that's my sense. But at any time we can refuse to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, I would rather have a thousand Christians fill the Spirit than one Christian that can pray in tongues and is not. This is an on, we're talking about a person. We're talking about relating to a person. Not being, it's not a force. It's, it's a person. We're talking about cooperating with someone that is inside of us, that we can hear his voice. We can do what he's saying. We can talk to him and walk with him. You can be filled with the Spirit and not have the gift of tongues. You can have the gift of tongues and not be filled with the Spirit. That's our goal. Now, however you splice 
when the disciples actually got the Holy Spirit and what the baptism of the Holy Spirit means, whatever. I don't think it really matters to split hairs over those things. We need more of the Holy Spirit. I want more of the Holy Spirit. I want to cooperate more with Him. I want to be more submitted to Him every way. I want to stop resisting Him in different ways in my life so that His power can flow out of me to people around me so that I can enjoy more of God on this earth like I was meant to, right? That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. He's making Jesus real to me so that I can make him real to other people. Verse 5. So here's what happens. I got ahead of myself again. All right, sorry. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, sorry, Egypt, and the parts of Libya, I got that one right, near Cyrene, visitors from Rome. They're, they're from everywhere, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. If you've ever heard of the name Azusa, it's most known for the Azusa Street Revival, which happened in the early 1900s in L.A. A guy named William Seymour was preaching. I think he was in in Kansas or something like that, and a woman was visiting from L.A., I think maybe family or something out there, heard him speak. He was preaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit in tongues, which the gift which he did not himself have. And she said, you've got to come speak at my church in California. They found a way to get him there. He, He started speaking. After his first message, the pastor of that church in L.A. locked the doors because she didn't like what he was preaching about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues, believing that maybe it wasn't for today or whatever. So he started meeting in a house on Azusa Street in L.A., and uh, he kept preaching the same message until a few days, maybe weeks later, someone started speaking in tongues in this service. And then it was just like a, a flood, the floodgates just broke. And then William Seymour, a few days later, he started, he started speaking. And then all this crazy stuff started happening. People were like falling over and, and just kind of singing and all this stuff. So there's two storylines from, from what was going on there. One is kind of, you know, maybe the, the Pentecostal report. One is maybe the mainline evangelical report. And one is the L.A. Times. Ministers came to investigate what was going on there. This, this move of the Holy Spirit where people are just like being, they're falling over, they're speaking in tongues, they're just kind of praising, the meetings are a little chaotic, there's weird things going on. And it, it quote, oh, did I write this down? Please tell me I did. Proud, well-dressed preachers came to investigate. Soon their high looks were replaced with wonder, then conviction comes, and very often you will find them in a short time wallowing on the dirty floor, asking God to forgive them and make them as little children. So people were falling under the power of the Spirit. You know, um, the L.A. Times, though, ridiculed what was happening. There's a couple of articles I read just in Wikipedia, just short little blurbs from these articles, just, you know, describing the events that they saw, just like they did here. 
they're a bunch of drunkards. Look at what's going on. They must just be drunk. The point I'm trying to make is this, is that sometimes when the Spirit is doing something, it looks different than what we might expect. It's not always going to be, this is God Almighty moving and the, the Red Sea parts, right? The Holy Spirit's often working in unseen ways, and people respond to Him in different ways. Some people might fall over. Is that the Holy Spirit? Maybe. Maybe that was how they responded to what He was doing. Who knows? Maybe sometimes He is just knocking them down, right? I don't know. God can do what He wants, and sometimes it's mysterious what He's doing. Our job is not to criticize or resist. That doesn't mean we can't, we can't analyze and say, hey, you know, what was going on there or whatever. But we do not want to have the hard heart that says they've had too much wine. Because look at the result of these weird, crazy meetings that the L.A. Times ridiculed. There are 280 million Pentecostal Christians in the world today. That is, um, sorry, I was doing a lot of different figures before this, and so now I'm trying to remember. I think that, that so let's see, if you multiply that by 10 and then by 2, uh, that's like a little less than 5%. So you're talking about like 4% of the world would trace their roots back to those weird events. That is a massive scale move of God. That came from a guy talking about something that he hadn't even experienced, but because it was in the Bible. That is the result. In the world today, there are over 500 million that would call themselves Pentecostal or charismatic believers. People that would say, yes, the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still for today. 500 million. Now you're up to like almost 10% of the world. The largest sect or group that can be broken down in the Catholic Church is the charismatic Catholic renewal. By a factor of eight. They are eight times larger than the next largest group that would be somewhat able to be categorized as a group. You're talking about 100 and like, I think it was like 120 million people. Guys, the Holy Spirit's here and He is available. He is working in this world. He's looking for people with open hearts that do not want to resist what he's doing. He's, he's, he's waiting for invitations all the time. He's always there wanting to move. So here's the first sermon in the history of the church. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 in the morning. Don't be crazy. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Meaning, no one is excluded. Okay, Not that every single person has gotten the Spirit. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Daughters will prophesy. Apostles, prophets, just throwing it out there. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. No one's excluded from the Spirit. That's the point. 
Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit. There's no socioeconomic or racial divide, right? I will pour out my spirit in those days. Which days? These days. It already happened. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and spills of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. Before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, I would argue that's AD 70, and that's judgment language on the nation of Israel for killing Jesus and refusing, resisting the work of the Holy Spirit, as you can see in Acts 7. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. It was obvious everybody knew that. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead and you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of it exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Boom! Pretty good sermon, huh? Come on! Good job, Peter. Good job, Holy Spirit. Okay? He continues, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, because the Holy Spirit was speaking, part of his job, right? He's bringing them to Jesus. And the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What did he say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Now we're talking about the next gen. They just received it. Now he's giving it away. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just what Jesus promised them in the same exact language in Acts 1, which we just read. Wait, the gift of the Holy Spirit. What happens when you believe? You get the Holy Spirit. Right? This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off and for all whom the Lord our God will call. It's for everybody. No second class Christians in the kingdom. Right? We all have one Lord and Master, Jesus. Our Discipler. He's our Yoda. Right? And we get His Spirit when we believe in Him. Okay? And this is the point. We are not praying Joel 2 anymore. That happened. 
That already happened. God did pour his spirit out. We're not saying, God, pour your spirit out. Yes, I guess you can pray that in the sense of, God, move through your spirit. We are open to what you're doing. But that prophecy was fulfilled. Peter just said it right here. This prophecy happened. This, what you just heard with the tongues, all this crazy stuff. This is what Joel talked about in Joel 2. God poured out his spirit. Look at all of us. We're a bunch of ragtag group, and God gave us his spirit. It's for everybody. Just believe, repent, be baptized. All right? With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation, meaning don't get caught up in the Acts 70 judgment of Israel. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Boom. The Holy Spirit has power. Holy Spirit has power. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. He is in us. Our job is to not resist him, but to cooperate with him so that we can know that Jesus is real, so that others can feel the reality of Jesus. Now, I want to read one more verse in Acts 4, because we're not going to read Acts 4 later. Peter and John get put in prison. They get released. da 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 They come to a prayer meeting. They pray for God to move and to do signs and wonders and help them proclaim the gospel boldly. And then it says, after they prayed... Acts 4.31, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I say this one verse to say they received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and then again, two chapters later, the Holy Spirit moves again and they are filled. We are always looking for more. More cooperation, more of God's power to flow through us. We need to unclog the places in our life that are resisting to God. Whether it's fear or unbelief or uncertainty about how God, God is good or we're weirded out by what might happen. we got to let that go. The Holy Spirit is here and He's available. He's not just at Bethel Church in Redding, California. Although He is there. There is something to impartation where someone prays over you. Paul says, I, I, I would long to come to you so I can impart some spiritual gift. There's something to that. But we got to start believing the Holy Spirit's with us. That he's walking with us. That what we're doing in our life matters. That what's happening in our neighborhood, in our place of work matters. And the Holy Spirit is here and he's available to you all the time. Our job is to say, okay, Holy Spirit, I am, I am done resisting you. Move. So, I didn't plan on sharing this, but here we go. I'm fasting again. Every Wednesday, and I'm saying this as accountability, because it makes it a lot harder if I tell 100 people that I can just slip out the back door and say, you know, I'm not going to fast today, because now i got to do it. Until at least the summer, Wednesdays, I'm not eating food. Why? Because I want more of the Holy Spirit. I want less resistance in my own heart. And you know what? I hate fasting. Look at me. I'm going to disappear. Okay? I'd like to put on a little muscle. Okay? You're welcome to do that with me or something else that the Lord is inviting you to do. But guys, I want more of Jesus. The more I stand up here, the more I feel the Lord saying, Brian, the only thing you can give them is Jesus. That's the only thing I want to give you. I mean, I want to give you more than that. I want to give you a hug after church, whatever. But you get my point. We need Jesus. It's the power of the Holy Spirit making him real to us that changes the game. He is a game changer because he is God. We can make plans. We can do all kinds of things. But if we do not cooperate with the Holy Spirit, if we do not have his power, we are letting the world and ourselves down. And he is waiting for invitations. He's always with us. He loves us. He's passionate about walking with us. He dealt with 12, well, 11 cowards in that room 
right, to turn their back on Jesus. And he was still saying, well, here you go. Boom, Holy Spirit, Peter, best sermon that ever preached. Let's start the church off well, right? Guys, he's here. He's with us. Let's not resist. This is how I want to respond. Let's have the band come back up. There's two things I want to do right now. Holy Spirit, come right now. We are, we are just inviting you to move. We want you. We want more of you. We want less resistance in our hearts. As Stephen accuses, the Jewish leader says, stop resisting the Holy Spirit. We don't want that to be us in any way, God. So I just invite you to respond. And I want you to do that in two ways, and you don't have to. Either stand up or kneel. I just feel like some shift in your physical posture, I am going to kneel, but you don't have to do that. And we just want to ask the Lord, Holy Spirit, how am I resisting you? Show it to me right now that I can confess it. And then please come and fill me up. We're going to take a few minutes just to do this quietly. I'm going to turn my mic off so that I can pray to the Lord. I just invite you to pray out loud, stand, hold your hands out, respond to the Lord in some way. How am I resisting you? Confess the things that he brings to your mind and ask him to come and fill you. There we just, we just say, we don't want to resist you anymore. We want to cooperate. Holy Spirit, make Jesus real to us now. Fill us up afresh so that the world will know that Jesus is alive. We need your power, Holy Spirit. And you have it. You are available to us. You are here. There's nothing that we've done that would disqualify us. 
And so we welcome you. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. Speak to each one, I pray, here in this room right now. Let us not resist or push you at arm's length or keep you outside. This is your church, Jesus. It's your church. We submit to you, to your way. We give you our lives. Thank you, Lord.